Glad to be back with you all. My name's Kevin Twitt. I'm the RUF campus minister, which is uh, the Presbyterian campus ministry at um, Belmont University. And it really is a joy to be here with you all. So we are going to be not going through the whole passage of Romans 8. I really wanted to bring out one particular aspect of Romans 8 that I think is absolutely so vital. And I guess the way I want to begin this morning is by talking about the problem of what you might call bumper sticker theology. Or today, I guess we might call it meme theology. I don't see as many terrible bumper stickers with little you know, Christian slogans on them as I used to. Maybe that's because that's not really an East Nashville thing, I suppose. But um, Nashville's not the same as it used to be, right? But the idea is so many topics in the Christian life um, get reduced down to simple little trite sayings, which really eliminate really important nuance. One of those, and, and now go with me here, because I know for some of you, the fact that I'm going to call this uh, maybe a phrase that's not that helpful. One of those is the phrase, once saved, always saved. Now, many of you may already be like, kind of wondering, where, where is he going with this? Um, the, where I'm going this morning is to look at the idea of how can you know that you really are a Christian? And this is actually whether you realize or not, a, a, a question that is, it's raised all kinds of controversy and debates from, you know, really since the beginning of the Christian world. There's a man named Larry Hurtado. He actually passed away not too long ago. Wrote a great book with, with a, you know, kind of a funny title. This is, this is not like a title that somebody who has been influenced by marketing would have, but it's, Why on Earth Would Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? That's literally the title of the book. It's a great, I mean, it really gets you, you know, a sense of what the book's about, but it's not real catchy, right? But why on earth would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? It's a fascinating book for you to look at and understand what was it about Christianity that transformed the world? How did Christianity grow in just incredible numbers when there was really no, no benefit socially, economically, career-wise, to becoming a Christian? What was it about Christianity that drew people anyway? And he lays out a number of, of points about this, um, but one of the things he mentions about the message itself was that there really was no other religion that offered a, re a relationship with God that was secure, that was secure because of what God had done and because of grace. And I would argue that that is the message that we need to believe and to proclaim again today. And yet, the fact is, so many of the students I work with who've come from Christian backgrounds, I know that's not true of all of you, but you, even being around this world, you've probably had sufficient interaction with Christians that you may kind of wonder why they seem so morbidly introspective all the time and really kind of anxious. And one of the reasons is because for many people, this idea of how do you know you're a Christian has not really been explained very well and sometimes has been, you know, reduced down to simple trite phrases. I had a, a student years ago, he actually used to go to, to City Church here, um, told me that when he was growing up, he went on this youth retreat 
And the speaker in the youth retreat, here's what he said. If you're 99% sure that you're a Christian, 99% sure you're 100% lost. I was like, that will mess you up. If, in other words, if you have any doubts at all, you have no reason to think that you really are a Christian. Which then, of course, makes you wonder, well, what do I need to do to secure God's love? Do you see the, the issue here? Now, the New Testament actually um, talks about this a great deal. For instance, the Gospel of John, John the Apostle says to us in that letter, at the very end of the, of the Gospel, he says, I have written these things so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. So the Gospel of John is written that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But then he writes 1 John, his letter, and there he says, I have written this so that you might know you have eternal life. That's actually a different thing. The Apostle John thinks it's important that we would know that we have eternal life. It's all over the place. Hebrews chapter 9, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, says that having our conscience cleansed from acts that lead to death is absolutely necessary for serving the living God. In other words, if you're not sure of your position in God's family, then it makes it sort of builds into your heart this kind of insecurity that makes you always like trying to, to do things or feel things to make sure that you've got it right. And I was thinking about this even as I was, I was driving in. I was even thinking about the role that songs play sometimes in kind of, kind of making a mess of this situation. You know, so many of the songs that, that we've sung, particularly in the last 50 years, are all about, you know, how much I love you, God. Not enough songs about the normal Christian life and what it feels like. I was listening to um, Sister Lucille Pope. Anybody listen? Anybody a fan of black gospel music? I was just thinking there's, there's two songs I have on my little playlist of, of like black gospel records. I've managed to find at estate sales on vinyl. So I have this, and I listen to this. And, and, and one of them, you know, I was thinking, the one song I was listening to, I was like, man, I don't know if we ever sing this in the white church, but um, it was a song basically saying, um, oh, hold on, oh, no, no, put it. It's basically like, you know, there's, some, there's somebody gone since we were here together last year. Like, imagine singing a song, you get together and you sing a song about how, look around church, there's somebody gone who was here last year. See, that builds a certain expectation that there will be some people not here, not just because they got mad at the pastor and left. Now, she's talking about people that have passed on. They actually sing about it. They actually name it. And then she's got another song about, um, in, in your vineyard, Lord, I'm working in your vineyard. And she's got this verse where she, and this is usually the song, song I listen to as I'm getting ready to preach. But she's got this verse that says, Oh, I know, Lord, that there's loneliness and loss. That's why I must bear the cross. I was like, okay, that's, see, those kinds of songs build into you 
a kind of understanding of the Christian life that is filled with ups and downs. Now, as we come to this, the letter of Romans, you need to understand, Paul is writing to a church that is about to, most likely, maybe already has, suffered tremendously. In chapter 7, Paul talks about how true Christians feel schizophrenic so much of the time. He says that, you know, I feel like the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, well, that's what I do. And then he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives this strong, strong statement about just feeling half crazy. And that's what leads into verse 1, where he says, there is therefore now, even though you feel crazy, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as we come to Romans 8, what Paul's wanting to say is, if you feel crazy, if you feel like my life is full of doubts, if you feel like there's a warfare going on, as he talks about here in Romans 8, you need to know, you need to know, how can I be sure that God loves me? How can you be sure? Well, in Romans 8, he basically lays out three ways. And they're actually all connected, as we're going to see. That if you, if you have all three of these, it really can help you. It really can help you. The threefold basis is this. First, trust in the promises. The promises of God make it possible for us to even be talking about this today. Has God promised that those who he has set his love upon, will persevere. We're going to talk about that today. The second is, do you see any kind of fruit of a changed life? And we're going to talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean. And then what what does it mean for the spirit to testify with our spirits that we are children of God? So that's where we're going to go. Pray with me, if you will, and then we're going to dig into this. Lord, we do thank you that you go out of your way to help us understand how we can know that we are your children. Help us today, Lord, to be encouraged, to be challenged for your glory. Amen. So as we think about this topic and these three threefold assurance that Paul gives us here. The first is the promises of God. And this one is actually the one upon which all the others build. Trust in the promises. Verse 1, there is now, now, no condemnation. Down in verse 38, I didn't read it, but I'm going to read it as we get uh, near the end of this sermon. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's strong. It's a strong promise. And why does, God, why does Paul rehearse these strong promises? Because this is the very nature of our God. He is the one who makes and keeps promises from the very beginning God has been making promises to his people. We call this the covenant. 
And if you go all the way back, all through the Old Testament, you find this theme running through the whole thing. I will be your God. You will be my people. Not just so you can be my little worker bees, but so that I can marry myself to you and have this rich, intimate relationship with you. This is what I'm all about, and I have promised to make this happen. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, and I love the old King James language here, it says, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. All the promises. And what is the Old Testament except promises reiterated over and over and over again? What are sacraments but promises, visible pictures of God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. And it's not based on what you do. It's based on what I am committed to do. Okay? That's hugely important to understand. In the first century, there was nothing like that. People were always kind of groping around in the dark, trying to figure out why are the gods mad at us and what can we do to fix that? Unfortunately, I would say there's a lot of Christians today who still live in that kind of fear, who still live feeling like, have I really done enough to really make absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sure? Some of you maybe even were raised in contexts where every week you have to come and dedicate your life to Jesus, and then the next week you better rededicate your dedications to make absolutely sure that you really, really, really meant it. And how can you really be sure that you really, really meant it? The fact is, you didn't mean it good enough or well enough to be sure of God's love if God's love is based on what you feel and what you intend to do. There's no hope for rest in the gospel in that kind of system. But so many people, that's kind of their understanding of Christianity, is you just have to grovel and you have to plead and hope that God would just let you into his house or let you into his kingdom if you really, really, really mean it. That is not the message that turned the world upside down. The message that turned the world upside down is God in his grace did everything required to secure the smile of God for his people, for people who he tells the Corinthians were basically nothings and nobodies. Not the kind of people that anybody would want on their team. But God says, I want you, and I'm going to do everything necessary to secure you in my love. That changes everything for the way you live. The idea that God has promised. I, I love one of, one of the passages that, that is so interesting to see in this is Hebrews chapter 6. Now, the first half of Hebrews chapter 6 is kind of a scary passage. It talks about how those who have turned back, um, even if they've tasted of the heavenly gift, all this stuff about if they turn away, it's impossible to come back to repentance. It's a strong warning passage about take this stuff seriously. Don't, don't play around with Christianity. It's serious. But then the second half of Hebrews chapter 6, fascinating. This is where we get the hymn on Christ the solid rock I stand, which is all about assurance. We stand on a solid rock, the only solid rock. Actually, I love this place in Isaiah 44 where God says, is there any other rock? I know not one. 
And if God, the omniscient one who knows everything, who sees everything, says there's no other rock, there is no other rock. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you're depending on. There is no other rock. God says it clearly, but he says, I am the rock. All right? So in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that God made this promise to Abraham, and he swore an oath. And then the writer of Hebrews says, well, why does he swear an oath? Why does God say, surely I will do this? Because God doesn't need to swear an oath. Human beings swear an oath because we lie all the time. And it's an attempt to make us feel like, well, I better not lie this time because I got my hand on the holy book. And, you know, so we swear oaths because we're unreliable. But the book of Hebrews says God doesn't need to swear an oath because his word is true. So whatever he promises, it has to come true. And his character is reliable. So he doesn't need to swear an oath to something greater than himself. There isn't anything greater than himself. But the writer of Hebrews says, why does he swear an oath? So that the heirs of salvation, all of you in this room who are Christians, would be sure of God's love. Like God goes out of his way to assure his people that you cannot be separated from my love. So that's the first basis. Trust in the promises. And it's a really big deal. And when you feel like, I don't know if, if, if it's really true, I remember my freshman year in college, I remember going and hearing a sermon, actually on Hebrews chapter 6, that messed me up for a long time. I remember the guy said, well, I don't think Christians can lose their salvation, or at least the Hebrews didn't, but it's at least hypothetically possible. You know what? That was all I needed to sort of be plunged into kind of this spiritual malaise. It's like, what's the point if I'm going to pursue God and then eventually I might like screw up or depart for a season and then the whole thing comes crashing down? What's the point, right? And, and I remember finally my senior year in college, a local pastor, we were talking about this stuff and I thought I was real smart and I knew theology. And I said, well, I think it's at least hypothetically possible for Christians to lose their salvation. And he goes, really? Have you read Romans 8? And of course I hadn't. You know, like what part of nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God? Are you part of the creation? You know, how could Paul have said it in a way that would actually convince you that God meant what he said? And I really did discover what I've heard Tim Keller say. Assurance of salvation is the power to live the Christian life. Now, what's interesting is there are huge swaths of the Christian church that don't believe this. That, that believe, for instance, that, well, the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, you know, for, for all the things that we agree with, this is one place where Protestants and the Catholic Church disagree. And it's important. The Council of Trent said this, assurance of salvation is a Protestant heresy. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. But basically, it's the idea, if you know God's love and you're sure of God's love, it will make you lazy. John Wesley taught the same thing. But what Paul's saying here, he's encouraging, as you saw, them to fight against sin. He says, put to death whatever is of the sinful nature. But he doesn't say, put to death whatever is of the sinful nature, because if you don't, look out, God's going to zap you. No, he says, there is now no condemnation. 
It's the security of knowing that what Jesus did secured the smile of God forever that actually gives us power to fight against sin. Why? Because one of the reasons that we run to sin is because the poison in our hearts that doubts the goodness of God, doubts that he really, in calling us to holiness, really has what's best for us in mind. The only way that poison gets dealt with is the security of the grace of God. Not by being afraid of God and feeling like I need to work my tail off to make sure he loves me. You ever been in a relationship with somebody that you weren't quite sure what they really think about you? It's awful. And it makes you incredibly self-conscious. You just are like thinking, you're just kind of scared and nervous about everything you do, wondering how they're gonna react. And guys, I know a lot of Christians that live like that. It's not what God wants for us. It's not what God wants for us. He wants us to have the freedom he talks about here of knowing that we are children of God, secured by the love of God. Well, how do you know that you're one of those people? Well, that brings us to the next thing, seeing fruit. But the fruit that you need to understand he's talking about here is basically warfare where there used to not be warfare. In other words, some people look at this or even hear me say that you need to see fruit in your life, and they, they basically say, well, if, if I still struggle with sin, then I wonder if there's real fruit. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Remember, Romans 7, the very end of Romans 7. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. What I do is not what I want to do. So Paul is saying, basically, you've been set free to struggle, and you should be encouraged by that. That if you feel schizophrenic, if you feel like I'm crazy, that's actually evidence that something has changed for you. Because he says here in Romans 8, verse 7, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What Paul is saying is, if something has changed in you, it sets you free to struggle and to fight and to mourn what's going on in your heart. You've been set free to struggle. Robert Murray McShane, a great old Scottish preacher who we named our second son, Cooper McShane. Sorry, our second son, our first son. I'm looking at my second son. My first son, Cooper McShane, he said this, a Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. As much by their warfare as they are by their peace. Now, Paul here talks about being led by the Spirit. And all those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, which is really interesting because then he goes on and talks about putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. What does it mean then in this context to be led by the Spirit? I don't want to get on this tangent too much. It's not talking about God speaking in your heart where you should go to college or what you should do for a job or who you should marry. It's talking about following the Spirit's lead and fighting against sin. He's talking about seeing a desire to live for God and to fight against sin at the deepest part of your being. But it's not the only thing that's fighting inside of you. So fruit is not equated with perfection or having it all together. 
You know, the Puritans, you know, they said some dumb stuff, but they said some, some really helpful stuff too. And one of the helpful things that you find regularly in their writings is this encouragement to fight against sin in your life, not so that God will love you, to fight against sin in your life because when you don't, it clouds your sense of God's love. Because fighting against sin, even when you fail and then you run back to Jesus and say, help me, is really one of the ways that God continues to meet you with his grace. In other words, fighting against sin encourages you that there really is something different. And when we don't, it really sometimes clouds our sense of God's love. There's another third thing that he talks about here, and it's the witness of the Spirit. Look at verse 15. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me just say, the reason the Bible uses the phrase sons and not sons and daughters has a cultural context. Roman law had particular privileges for adopted sons that daughters did not have. And so when Paul uses this language, it's not, it's not sexist, it's not misogynist. It really is speaking about the security that only an adopted child could have. You couldn't actually disinherit an adopted son the way you could even your natural-born children. When we adopted our daughter, we had to sign paperwork that we would never disinherit her. And I did not have to do that with my boys, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? There's a certain security in being a son of God. And I always say, listen, ladies, the guy, we've got to figure out what it means to be the bride of Christ. You have to understand what it means to be the sons of God. So neither one of us gets to sort of only imagine a relationship with God through our own gender, okay? There, it, everything is bigger than we might think. But here he's talking about this witness of the Spirit and, and it really is, I think the way to think of it is, it's a concurrent witness. I, I've heard it said that sometimes, you know, a lot of times the Christian life is like preaching the gospel to ourselves and trying to remind ourselves of what is true. But sometimes the Spirit, sometimes the Spirit preaches directly to your heart and actually comes in in a way, an experiential, mystical way that you know this is really true. And that's what, that's what Paul's talking about here. A, a, a sense of, I really am a child of God. Now, there, there's an old, old, old story. A guy named Thomas Manton, who was one of the Puritans, had this story. He said, imagine a, a guy is walking down the street with his, his son, small son. They're holding hands. They're walking down the street. And all of a sudden, the dad kind of pulls him up and gives him a bear hug. And he, what, what Manton says is, He's no more a son in his father's arms as he is walking next to his dad. But oh, for the difference in the experience. Oh, for the difference in the experience. And that's what Paul's talking about here, about the times when the spirit, even in the midst of the groaning, and there's groaning everywhere here, but the, the, even in the midst of the groaning, the spirit's saying, you are my child. All this stuff is true. Now, let me just say this. You need all three of these working together 
to have a, a strong sense of assurance. You might be a Christian and have a weak sense of assurance, and that is really important for you to understand. This is what was wrong with what that, that youth pastor told my friend, that if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. Do you understand what they're doing in that world? They're saying that you're saved by how sure you are that you're saved. And it's certainly getting the cart in front of the horse. And they're saying that if you have any doubt about whether you're saved, well, then you better make sure you invite Jesus into your heart again just to make absolutely sure. And if you're at all introspective, you're always going to find reasons in your heart to wonder whether you really meant it. And it's just this vicious catch-22, right? And, and so it's important to say that there are many Christians who are true Christians who struggle to believe they're Christians. And there can be many reasons why you can go kind of up and down sometimes, right? And, and, and what to help us, you need to see how all three of these working together are so important. Because it's, you know, there are people who I think would say, well, I trusted in the promise of God. When I was six, I went forward at a meeting and I prayed a prayer. Now, I haven't ever felt the love of God in my heart. I've never felt like I was a child of God. I've certainly never even seen any evidence that I'm a Christian in any sort of way in the way I live. But I'm sure I'm a Christian because of what I did when I was six. Well, they might be a Christian. But I suspect that they wonder in the secret of their hearts because they've not seen these other things. Or you could be someone that's like, well, you know, I used to live like a hellion, but now I live differently. I was like, okay, so you've made a change, but have you ever trusted the promises of God? Have you ever sent and felt the, the testimony of the spirit that you're a true child of God? Not necessarily, right? Couple other applications as we kind of, how do, what's the point of this? How do we apply this? Like I said, true Christians, can struggle with assurance for a number of reasons. Temperament, living in unrepentant sin, sometimes God removing his presence to draw us to a deeper level of trust rather than just our feelings. And so it's important that this not be a little bumper sticker idea, once saved, always saved, but it be something that is handled with pastoral sensitivity. And that means even how you think and talk to yourself. But it's also something I want to encourage you to talk to somebody about. Because there are a lot of Christians that just kind of live and wonder how to even know about this kind of stuff. And like I said, for a lot of people, they have a real false idea that if you're a Christian, you just kind of live in this kind of spiritual ether, you know, above, rising above all the other stuff. Like, like things just don't bother you anymore. Listen to what Paul says here. I consider... I consider that the suffering of this world is not worth comparing to the glory. That means he's had to sit down and calculate the coming glory, but he's not saying that the present suffering isn't real. Do you understand? It's a big difference between saying, well, if I was really a Christian, then the troubles of this world wouldn't bother me at all. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the troubles are very real. But as I consider and I do some calculus, I realize that the coming glory is so much greater, it's not even worth comparing. But Christians are not people who just sort of rise above and feel like everything's great, everything's wonderful, and I wish you could see things as I do. That's not real. The second thing I want to say is about the problem of making a Jesus out of your faith. One of my favorite um, writers is a guy named William Romaine. Yes, just like Romaine Lettuce. 
if you want to look him up, that's how you spell it. He wrote these letters. Maybe some of you have heard of the letters of John Newton, the hymn writer, and those are excellent as well. But William Romaine's letters are, are very helpful. He lived back in the 1700s, and people in those days would often write pastors with their spiritual questions and problems, and they would write letters of spiritual counsel back, and it's awesome because we can read some of these. There was one time when somebody wrote him struggling to believe that they really were a Christian. And, 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 he, and as he tries to diagnose what's going on, I, listen to this, I think it may resonate with you. He says, here's the problem. You're looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but you're looking at your faith. And you would draw your comfort, not from him, not from Jesus, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect savior. You're kept looking at your act of believing. Did I believe? Do I believe? Why? He says, well, I think it's so that you can take comfort from your faith and be satisfied with it so that you can rest in it. He says, this is making a Jesus out of your faith. It is, in effect, taking the crown of crowns from his head and placing it upon the head of your faith. You want comfort, and you look to your faith for it. But if your faith could speak to you, here's what it would say. I've got no comfort to give you. Look to Jesus. It's all in him. It is true, he says, that much faith brings much comfort from Christ and carries much glory to him. But the way to get much faith, this is critical, the way to get much faith is not to look at it, but to look at your Savior. Not to look at your hand, but to look at Jesus. Not look at how you hold him, but that he is yours and holds you and your faith too. Therefore, you shall never perish, but shall have everlasting life. The way I think about this is the best way to fall out of love is to work on the relationship rather than focusing on the other person. And I work with college students, so they're all the time talking about, well, we're trying to work on our relationship. Don't work on your relationship. Focus on the other person and ask God to give you his love for them. I mean, he says, he says to us about our love for him that your love, O oh Ephraim, is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. So don't, don't, don't focus on your love or your relationship. Don't even focus on your love for God because you'll find that it's full of holes and then you'll think that Jesus is full of holes. Don't make a Jesus out of your faith. And that's why we come every week and we sing these songs. We hear from God's scripture and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a gospel preached in a picture. And it's given for people with weak faith. Is there anybody here who needs encouragement for their weak faith? Absolutely. And God knows that. And God has taken it upon himself to give us a weekly ritual to say to all of you who are here who have weak faith, my blood was shed for you. My body was broken for you. Take and eat. Not because you love me so well, but because I love you so well. Don't look at your hand. Don't look at your faith. Don't look at your relationship with me because your relationship with me is, is kind of awful. Uh, Rick will remember one time, Pastor Scott Rowley, when we were, years ago, we were down at a church in Franklin, Christ Community, he said, listen, God knows what it's like to be married in a bad marriage, because he's married to you, you know? 
and yet he comes and he dies for you anyway. Right? And that is to, to give us more assurance that we could live for him. Right? And, and that's why we're going to sing this, this song during communion. I actually wrote this for City Church years and years ago because I, I found this text for the, bread, for the bread which combined the idea that the bread was broken for us and the longing for the kingdom to come. Why? Because the assurance and the security that comes from this meal and from this word of promise is what sends us out with boldness to say to the world, we don't believe your lies anymore. May your kingdom come. Those two are always, always linked. Let me pray, and then David's going to come up and invite us to the table. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you that you are a God who wants us not to live in fear, but to live in the glorious freedom of sons and daughters of God. And may you help us in Jesus' name. Amen.